All right, hey, when you've met someone, you can go ahead and take a seat. Once you've met someone, though, um, just want to say good morning. Welcome, guys. Welcome to The Exchange. We're so glad you're here. My name is Josiah, and uh, if you're new here, I'd love to say what's up and meet you after. Um, We are in the Gospel of Mark. We're taking the year to go through the Gospel of Mark. So let's do this. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, We'd love to get you a Bible so you could follow along and and just read the Scripture with us. But we're going to be in Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. If you have a Bible, turn there. If you need one, uh, raise your hand. We'd love to get you one. Keep it. That is yours. But we're going to be in Mark chapter 6. Again, just want to say welcome. So glad you're here. Um, We want to slow down and and take the, the year to look at the life and ministry of Jesus, to focus on Jesus, who he is, what he said, what he did, what he claimed. Uh, We want people to get to know the true historical Jesus. I think there's a lot of even like, it's kind of misbeliefs with even within the church about who is Jesus, what did he say, what did he do, how did he love, how did he act. Um, And so we want to slow down and just look at the life of Jesus. And and here's what I want to share. If you're new here and this is like maybe your first time you've been around church and you don't believe in Jesus, here's my only request is that you just consider Jesus. Just consider Jesus. Slow down and take the time to read about him. What did he claim? What did others say about him? Um, just consider Jesus. And if you are a believer, I would say, let's, let's, we want to use this text and use this scripture just to fall more in love with Jesus, to really get to know him, that we may know him. Um, so we're in Mark chapter 6. Uh, before we kind of read the text or get into it, let me just kind of explain where we're at just so I can catch up to speed. Uh, and Mark, the gospel of Mark is the shortest gospel. I mention this all the time. It's the shortest gospel, 16 chapters. It's the ADD gospel. It's the gospel where Mark just moves from one topic to the next. That's why I like this gospel. That's why we're studying this gospel. Uh, but this is also the gospel where this is kind of Peter's gospel. Uh, An early church father, his name was Eusebius, he wrote about this and said, the gospel of Mark is essentially Peter's gospel. That Mark was discipled by Peter, heard the stories of Peter, the firsthand encounters and experience of of Peter, and, and Mark's the one who wrote this down. And this is actually the first gospel penned, the first gospel written. There are so many stories and ideas about Jesus, and everyone's going, is this real? Is this true? How do we know he really said this and did this? So the guys who knew him best said, let's write this down, and we need to get the message out there. And so we are in Mark chapter 6, verse 1 through 13, last week. And and last week, we talked about how Jesus came home to the, the city of Nazareth, the place he was, you know, raised up, and he goes back home, and he was rejected, that the people didn't want him. They didn't believe in him. And it says that Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. Like he was so amazed by the people's unbelief. And it says he couldn't do any mighty works there because of their unbelief. And so we see that Jesus leaves that city. He leaves Nazareth. He goes with his disciples to other cities around. And he says, hey, you've seen me serve. You've seen me love. You've seen me heal. Now go out and do. And we talked about last week, disciples see, disciples do. Are you saw Jesus? Now, now do what Jesus did. And so they go out, and they're now sharing the gospel and healing people and helping people. And here, our text today is a really interesting text. It's a really unique text. I mentioned this before, but Mark does something called a sandwich technique, where he tells a story, he stops telling a story, introduces a new story, walks through that story, then goes back to the other story. We're kind of in that middle ground. We're looking at the middle part, the interruption. We're going to be studying verse 14 through 29, and Mark stops talking about Jesus and what the disciples are doing and says, let me tell you about John the Baptist and Herod, and let me tell you about how John the Baptist died. And it's a really interesting story. And this section is kind of like Inception because it starts off with one story, then it moves to the next saying, you know, Herod thinks Jesus is John the Baptist and here's why, then tells another story about how John died and then we can go back to the true story. It's a really just unique way of how he, he lays it out. And so what we see here primarily in this section is John confronts, John the Baptist confronts Herod on his sexual sin 
and Herod rejects him and throws him in prison, prison and eventually beheads him. And just what we're going to look at today, and it's, you know, sometimes it just helps me do this. The title today is simply this thought. You can't handle the truth. That's the idea. Uh, you can't handle the truth because here's what we see. John presents truth to them, and Herod just could not handle it. And this is such an interesting passage because, again, like I mentioned, we're going to see this would have been in, in the newspapers in, in their day. I mean, this is so scandalous. I mean, you think about government authorities, you think about royalty, you think about the sex scandals that are happening, there's greed, there's pride, there's deception. I mean, all of, there's murder. I mean, all of this is happening in this text. And this would have been like, this would have been known amongst the region, amongst the people. I mean, it's a really scandalous thing that's happening here. And the most tragic thing in this text is not the fact that John the Baptist gets beheaded. The most tragic thing we really see is Herod's response to John. And so I just want to read this, this interruption. It's Mark chapter 6, verse 14. We're just going to read this because there's a lot of things we can take away uh, from this passage. So Mark chapter 6, verse 14. Remember, the disciples just came back. They're healing people. They, they cast out demons. Verse 14, it says, Now King Herod heard of Jesus for his name it had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, no, it is Elijah. And others says, it is the prophet or, or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, when he heard about Jesus and his fame spreading, he says, this is John whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. And now it tells the story of how he killed John. Verse 17, for Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore Herodias held it against John and wanted to kill him, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and that he protected him. And when he heard him, he, he did many things and heard him gladly. Then an opportune, day, an opportune day came when Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles and the officials and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give, uh, give to you up to half my kingdom. So she went and asked to her mother and said, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought, and he went and beheaded him in prison. And he brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples, when John's disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Happy Sunday. Uh, we're just going to pray. Pray over this and ask that God speaks and, and really speaks to our hearts through this text. Let's pray. Father, we do recognize that many times in, in our life there's interruptions and there's things that happen. And Jesus, there's a reason for that. And we don't always get it. But Lord, I ask that you just speak to our hearts today. God, let us learn from John the Baptist's life. Let us learn from Herod and his response and Herodias and her response. Jesus, I do believe that there's so much you want to do within our, our lives through this. That God, no one here, myself included, likes it when we're approached on our sin. But Jesus, help us respond differently. Help us respond humbly. Jesus, help us to fear you rather than man. And we ask that you just move and be in this place and speak to our hearts this morning. In your wonderful name. Amen.
In this text before us, what we see here is paranoia at its finest. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been paranoid before or been around someone who's been paranoid, uh, but it really kind of takes over the whole person. It takes over how you think, how you make decisions. Uh, we, maybe you've seen this on a small scale or a large scale. We've all had this to some capacity. You know, think about this. Maybe this is just me, but you're driving home from work or from school, and you're like, get over a few lanes, and this car behind you gets over a few lanes. You're like, oh, that's weird. And you change lanes again. You're like, oh, change lanes. That's weird. I'll just change lanes and change back. And like, it did that. And then you start to get paranoid, and you're like, maybe it's following me. Maybe there's like a psychopath just randomly chose me, and he wants to murder me, right? Like, we've all kind of maybe had that, and like, we, we do U-turns, and it does a U-turn, and you're like, okay, this is weird now. You call someone on the phone. But we've all had like small scales of paranoia. Uh, I think about my dog. We used to have a dog. But he would like stare at the wall, and like, what is he looking at? Like, what does he see? Or what does your cat see that you don't see? Like, freaks you out. You're like, it sees something, right? And we've all had, like, small scales of this, or your foot is hanging over your bed at night, and you're sleeping. And then you're like, I'm just going to put my foot back on my bed. <laughs> you hear a noise in your room. You're like, all right, it's either a ghost or a murder, or it's a ghost murder. Something's here, though. And it freaks you out. And we've all had, like, these small-scale versions of this. You know, it's funny. My wife and I really got into the show Survivor. Um, I know it's, like, 20 years too late. Uh, but we got into the show Survivor. And if you've seen it, you know, you're basically trying to make it 39 days, become the number one person, win, win a million bucks, but you're like using people and you're, you're tricking people. And like, yeah, I'm with you. And like you deceive people and you, you, you vote against them and you, you know, you get blind, uh, what's it called? Blind swiped or blind sided. Uh, and like all these things are happening. You're just being really de deceitful in the process. And I can't imagine like when the game's over, do you even trust anyone? Like when you get back to real life, you're like, are you out to get me? Like we've, we felt this. We used to actually play this game with the students and maybe this wasn't good. Um, but we used to go on mission trips and we would go, you know, do this on different events. We play this game called Mafia. And in Mafia was everyone would be given like a character. You get a card and you're a certain character. You're a townsperson or a doctor or you're the Mafia. And no one knows who's who except like the narrator of the story. And basically the Mafia's goal would be to kill off the townspeople. And when everyone wakes up, you, you voted who's the Mafia. I think so-and-so's the Mafia because they moved. And I think, no, this person's the Mafia. They sneezed. And, and like we have like weird. And then when the game's over, whenever the game was over, we'd like go back to like normal life. And like, hey, do you want some of my food? You're like, what'd you do to it? Like, there's this weird, like, it's just weird how that game of, like, paranoia would, like, play over in our normal life. And this is what's happening here. Because I want you to think about this. King Herod murders John the Baptist. Jesus comes on the scene, and Herod goes, oh, no, this powerful one who's casting out demons and healing sick people, John the Baptist came back to life, and somehow he's already a full-grown adult, and he's already doing it. He didn't fully get it, but he's paranoid. He goes, he's out to get him. And this is a really unique story. Because so far in the Gospel of Mark, if you've been with us, it's obviously been all about Jesus. Who he is, what he's doing, he's coming to heal people, bring restoration, bring life. It's really been, so far, obviously the focus has been about Jesus. And this is like a re really unique text where it just kind of stops and doesn't talk about Jesus, but talks about John the Baptist and King Herod. And in some ways, I think it's kind of showing you, look at King Jesus and how he came and how he loved and how he served and look, look, served, and look at this king. Look at King Herod. Look at his tyrannical nature, his paranoia, the way he, he used people, the way he was, he was this narcissistic and, and self-absorbed. And I think that, that what Mark is doing here is showing us King Jesus versus King Herod. And he's also showing us the life of John the Baptist. And it's weird because it, it, we don't really stop this much to have a text like this to focus on some other character. Because even when you get to verse 30, it just goes back to the story. It goes back to the disciples. Like, this is just a random kind of thrown-in text. And when it stops, I think it's comparing and contrasting certain things between Jesus and John and John and Herod and Herod and Jesus. And this is just a really unique text. So here's how we're going to look at this. I, I kind of broke it up into three acts, all right, rather than points, but three acts. All right, so act one, we're going to see Herod's paranoia. Act two, we see that Herod's confronted with truth. 
And in Acts 3, we see Herod pleases man rather than God. If I had to break this up into three different acts and kind of what's happening in this story, we see it kind of broken up this way. So let's look at the first one, Act 1. We're going to see Herod's paranoia. Again, in verse 14, it says, Now King Herod heard of Jesus, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, no, it's Elijah. Others says it's a prophet or, or like one of the prophets. But Herod heard, he said, this is John whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. All right, let me just kind of explain who Herod is in the background. If you guys remember, um, there's a guy named Herod the Great. This is not this Herod. This is, this is Herod's, Herod the Great is this Herod's dad. Herod the Great was the, the, the ruler of Galilee, the ruler of the Jewish people when Jesus was born. Herod the Great was the one who wanted to kill all the infants under a certain age, hoping to destroy Jesus, hoping to destroy the Messiah. That's his dad. Herod the Great, he's called the Great, even though he's not that great, but Herod the Great, he's called that because he's the guy that helped kind of rebuild the second temple. And so this is Herod, this is actually Herod Antipas, the one we're reading about. If you guys know when Herod the, uh, the Great died, his kingdom was divided into four parts. Three, three parts of the kingdom went to his sons, three sons. One part went to his sister. And these four tetrarchs would kind of rule the land. So this is Herod Antipas, and he's ruling Galilee in this area called Perea. So he's ruling Galilee, and this is where Jesus is. Jesus is doing most of his work around Galilee so far. Like his miracles, his healings, the ministry. So here's King Jesus coming into King Herod's territory, and he doesn't like it. And Mark, in a sense, like juxtaposes, compares and contrasts King Herod versus Jesus. And he's kind of showing him, saying, look at this one king and how he rules and reigns and how he serves and loves, and look at this other king how he's in his palace throwing parties, narcissistic, self-absorbed. And then you begin to see that this is really Herod's paranoia coming out. He goes, oh no, this person who's doing all these mighty works, and think about what he's hearing. He's hearing that leprosy is being healed. He's hearing that demons are being cast out. The story we just read like a couple weeks ago was this little girl came back to life, and he's thinking, John the Baptist is back, and not only is he back, but he has resurrection power, and he has power. And it's freaking him out. And you, you, you kind of see this, when, whenever you sin, a lot of times, many times, one of the fruits of sin is paranoia. Kind of get weirded out by your own sin. And, and really think about this. If you guys remember different, you know, short stories we had to read growing up, like Macbeth. Remember Lady Macbeth? And, and she, like, forces her husband to do this murderous thing, and, and, and she sees blood on her hands, and she's trying to scrub the blood out of her hands. She can't, she, there's no blood on her hands, but she sees it on her hands, and she can't get rid of it, and she smells the blood, and she's like, all of the, all of the perfume and all of Arabia couldn't even remove the smell, because why? She's paranoid. She was, it was just haunting her. Her sin, her murderous act, it was just haunting her. Or remember, the, I think it's called The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe. What a weird, creepy short story if you've ever read that. Like the main character, like the narrator, starts off by saying, I'm not crazy, but listen to the story. And he starts telling the story, and this old man with a vulture eye, and he's like, I just got to kill this guy. He kills this old man. He dissembles him. He buries him under his floor. The police are over at his house one day. They don't know he killed the man. He's just there. The police are over, and he starts to hear that thud underneath the floorboard of his house, like, da-da, da-da, and it gets louder and louder and louder, and he thinks the police hear, but they're just ignoring it to freak him out, to mess with him, right? And he thinks they hear it, and he finally goes, I did it! And he, like, opens up and shows the, the man. And, and you think about that, it was just haunting him, his paranoia at its finest, his creeping in. And I'll just, simple definition, dictionary definition, paranoia is a mental condition characterized by delusions, persecution, unwarranted jealousy, or exaggerated self-importance, like Herod, typically elaborated into an organized system. This is what's going on with Herod. He murders John the Baptist, a guy it says he gladly heard, a guy that he listened to, and it's haunting him. 
Jesus is coming on the scene, doing all, all these great things, and Herod is convinced. They're like, no, no, Jesus is, he's like one of the prophets. He's like Elijah. And he's like, no, no. He says it twice. No, no. This is John whom I beheaded. And it's just interesting because I know that we might not have this extreme in our life when it comes to sin and this kind of paranoia, but we've all felt this. We've all felt paranoia to some extent. You know, if, if you've ever sinned or done something and never told anyone, never brought it to the light, you know, you might feel that people are talking about you, people are talking about it. Maybe you're like, oh my gosh, the pastor keeps mentioning this. Does he know? And like, I have no idea. But it's like, you maybe feel that or you sense that someone comes to you and you're like, is this the day? Or is this the day they're going to bring it up to me? Do they know? Do they know what I've done? And it kind of, this is what's happening with Herod. This sin is haunting him. And the only way to cure paranoia, by the way, is confessing it. The only way to cure paranoia is you bring it to the light before someone else brings it to the light. Because what we're going to see is John brings it to the light. And the cure would have been for this paranoia in Herod's life would have been that he brings it to the light, that he confesses it, that he makes it known. But John comes on the scene and he brings it to the light. And this brings us to Act 2. Act 2 is this, Herod's confronted with truth. And so it kind of starts off by saying all these works, you know, it's Jesus, but he thinks it's John. And then it tells us why he killed John or how he killed John. So now it kind of goes to the original story of how John was murdered. Because this wasn't the original story. Verse 17 It says, for Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John, and he bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore, Herodias held it against John and wanted to kill him, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And And when he heard him, he did many things, and he heard him gladly. All right, up until this point in John the Baptist's ministry, think about it. John was, had a pretty successful ministry. Uh, people are coming from all over the land to be baptized by him. John's message was pretty simple. He was saying, whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, repent. I don't care if you're, you're Jewish and you think you're good with God because of your blood, because of who you are, repent. He, whoever, righteous, unrighteous, everyone needs to repent. Everyone needs to believe. And here's what I see, and here's what's interesting. All of us, for the most part, are okay with those general statements. Like, please, like, hear this. All of us are okay if someone says, if I get up here and say, hey, we're all sinners. There's none righteous, no, not one. Not everyone, but for the most part, everyone's like, yeah, we're pretty messed up. People are bad, in a sense. Like, people can, can kind of can accept those general terms, but once you get specific, once you get specific with sin, that's when it turns people off. See, it's one thing to say, everyone sins, everyone makes mistakes, everyone falls short of the glory of God, but it's another thing to say, hey, you need to stop sleeping with your girlfriend. That's when you go, hey, whoa, pastor, take it. You don't know me. Don't get all judgmental in here, right? Like, it's okay to, like, talk generally. But once you get really specific, and once, you know, if if only one of you showed up to church, like, next week it's, like, me and you, right? It's going to be a little bit different of a sermon, right? Like, it feels different. It looks different. This is what's happening with John the Baptist and Herod. See, he talked really openly about repentance. Everyone repent. Jew, Greek, get baptized. But he calls Herod out specifically on his sin, and it eats Herod and especially Herodias alive, and again, we are all this way. I mean, I think we're more similar to Herod and Herodias than, than maybe we think we are. Because when someone looks at you and says, hey, listen, I love you, and you know, you, you guys might all agree if someone says, hey, getting drunk is a sin, you're like, yeah, okay, maybe, you know, the Bible says that, whatever. But if I said, hey, specifically you, you're drinking too much and it's hurting your family. And you know, it's actually causing this brother or sister in Christ who used to be an alcoholic to just kind of fall back in the old ways, you gotta stop. That's when you go, what are you talking about? You don't know me. You don't know how much alcohol I can, I can contain. Like, right? like, once you get specific, that's what offends people. And, and that could be self-righteous sin. 
That could be so many different. I have no idea what that is. That is the Holy Spirit when he speaks. When someone speaks to you in, lovingly, in a loving way and says, I love you, but this, this sin is in your life and it's killing you, a lot of us, our first reaction is to defend ourselves. Say, who do you think you are? You don't know me. My God's a God of grace. Like, and we're really quick to kind of just point it the other way or deflect it. And this is what's happening here. And again, our reactions are pretty similar. And I want us to see this because he calls him out on his brother's, he calls him out on his brother, or Herod, stealing his brother's wife. Now, historically, just so you know, um, Herodias, uh, this is the half, this is his half-niece, Herod Antipas' half-niece, historically, but also his brother's wife. This is, this is just family dysfunction at its finest. You're like, what does that even mean? So Herod Antipas married Herod Philip's wife, his brother's wife, who's also his half-niece. Uh, fun fact, you can't marry your half-niece who's also your brother's wife. Okay, just so you know that. It's weird. And this is what John calls him out on. And this is not just like a Jewish thing, like, oh, this is incest. Like, this is not just a Jewish thing. This is just a common sense thing. And John's calling him out on it. And he wants nothing to do with it. And he goes, who do you think you are? This is too specific. How, how do you, who do you think that you are that you can share this with me? And here's what I want us to see. Um, Herod threw him in prison because he confronts him. And listen, here's what I want us to all feel and see at this point. Um, the truth will set you free, yes, but the truth first makes you miserable. And that is so true. Like, yes, the truth will set you and I free, but the truth will make us miserable in the process. You see, the, the gospel and the, the Bible, it is tragedy before it's comedy. If you think about it like in writing form, it's, it's bad news before it's good news. It's, hey, yes, we all are sinners. Yes, we all fall short. But here specifically, yes, by nature, we're children. It's just a part of our DNA in a sense. But specifically, here's how you and I offend God or sin against God. And in a sense, it's tragedy before you get to the comedy. And most people can't handle that bad news. Most people only want to look at the good news of it, but you can't, again, you can't appreciate the good news unless you know the bad news. You can't appreciate the comedy unless you know the, the tragedy side of this. And this is what's happening. And he calls him out. And I love verse 20, and I want us to like focus in a sense really quick on verse 20, because look at his response in verse 20. It says in Mark chapter 6, verse 20, it says, For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he had heard him, he did many things, and he heard him gladly. He heard him gladly. This is so interesting. He knew that John was calling him out on a sin, and yet he, it, it seems like often he was pulling John out of prison. He's like, tell me more. I want to hear you more. And he actually heard him gladly, and it is so interesting to me. I, I, I'll share it this way, and, and there's other versions of this, but um, I was doing a, a premarital counseling uh, over a year ago, I believe, um, before we planted this church, and it's really unique. And I I'm going to try to just paint the picture. You kind of hear what's going on. I was doing premarital counseling. There's a couple that wanted to get married. I'm spending a lot of time with them. During the premarital counseling, I, I come to find out that um, this guy was divorced. And he was, and again, there's biblical reasons for divorce. And so we're just talking through, like, what is that? And, and I'm trying to figure that out. But he was a Christian when him and his wife got married. They're Christians. They're serving the church. He filed for divorce. And I'm like, okay, help me understand that. And he's explaining it. And I, and I asked him, I said, do you believe that you had biblical grounds for divorce? He goes, oh, of course I did not. I'm like, okay. I'm like, does your ex-wife, is she, yeah, she's a believer. She's serving at her church. Does she want to get back together with you? He's like, I have no idea. I asked him, do you, do you mind if I call your ex-wife? He said, go ahead. I call his ex-wife. I hear her whole story. And I'm, I'm trying to summarize this to you because it's very long and hours and hours and hours of meeting with this couple. But I come to find out his ex-wife goes, yes, my husband filed a divorce. I still am open to reconciliation. He's not. So I ask him, and I just simply ask him, I say, hey, listen, you were a believer when you got married. Your wife was a believer when you got married. You said with your own mouth, you get divorced your wife for unbiblical reasons. And I said, let me just ask you, do you think you have biblical grounds to get remarried? He said, no, I don't. I'm like, okay. I'm like, so do you want to get married still to your new fiance? He goes, yes, I do. 
And I was so confused. I was like, hold on. So you know you got divorced for unbiblical reasons. You know if you get remarried for you, in your own words, you said you would consider this adultery. He says, yes. I go, okay. Do you have any problem with that? He says, no. And I was so like, I didn't know how to, like, what to say next. He goes, and this is what he says. He goes, listen, I want to thank you for showing me the word of God and holding me to it, but I'm still going to get married. Now, I was so confused because I was like, listen, I want you either to punch me in the face right now or repent. That's your only, but don't thank me. Do you know what I mean? Like, either get mad at me, like, how dare you say, and I wasn't saying remarry his, like, I wasn't saying you need to remarry your ex-wife. And me. I was just saying, you don't have grounds for remarriage, right? He goes, I do not have grounds for remarriage. And it's just like, you're agreeing with me. I'm agreeing, I'm agreeing with you. I'm like, do you not sound crazy? Because I feel like this sounds crazy. And it was just the weirdest conversation in the world. He goes, thank you so much for meeting. We're still going to get married and we're still going to attend this church. And I was just so confused by that. And I had no, and it, it just, it just did so much. And I, it's funny because oftentimes Christians, we can do this in our own way. We agree and we know this is a sin. Okay, it's a sin. Is it wrong? Yes, it's wrong. Do you continue to do it? Uh-huh. Do you feel bad? No. Like, do you see anything wrong with that? Mm-mm. I'm like, what? And it's, this is what's happening with Herod. Herod's confronted with this sin. And Herod, hear, it says he hears him gladly. Like, I, what does that even look like? And he brings him out to hear him. And that's just fascinating to me. And I, I just stuck on that going, but we do this. My heart is still like this. I can read God's word and go, yes, it's true. Yes, it's good. But do I want to repent? I want to hold on to this a little bit longer. And that's what's happening with Herod. It's actually interesting. I love, the ESV does put it better, um, a lot better in verse 20. It simply says it this way in verse 20. It says, so I can throw it up here. It says, when he heard this, he was greatly perplexed. He was perplexed. This word in the Greek is this word aporeo. All, all it really means is he was paralyzed by indecision. Please hear this. In verse 20, John confronts him on truth. And it says in our version, it says he did many things, but it says he was greatly perplexed. He was paralyzed by indecision. He knew where he was at. He had this window of opportunity, and yet he missed it. And that's what I want you to hear. He had this window of opportunity to repent and say, you're right. What am I doing marrying my half-niece, my brother's wife? Like, what am I doing? He had this window of opportunity. He was greatly perplexed. He was at this crossroads, this window of opportunity, and yet didn't, didn't give into it. Yet he ran away from it. He just wanted to hear it more and, and kind of prolong it. And that is so often how sin works in our lives. We're, we're confronted with it, and we're at a crossroad, and it's like repent and believe in Jesus or continue in it, and we just kind of want to continue to linger and have it, have it live on. And I'd say, please this, please listen. Do not assume, do not assume for one moment that you'll have this window of opportunity to repent forever. Whether another 10 months, another 10 years, what, don't assume that you'll have this, when you're confronted with truth, do not assume that you will be confronted with it and have this, this heart that is inclined to repent, this heart that's inclined to say, you know what, you're right, I need to turn from this. You know, I love what Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, listen to this in 2 Corinthians 6. He says, we then as workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, it is in an acceptable time I have heard you and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. One of the, one of the scariest things for me when I talk to someone about Jesus and they're like, hey, you're right. I think Jesus is, is, is God in the flesh, is the Messiah. Or you're talking to someone about Jesus and they're like, I think I should repent of my sins and make him my Lord, but I still want to continue to live this out for a little bit longer. I still want to continue to entertain this person, entertain this relationship, or do this for a little bit longer. And my thought, my, my, the thought that always goes through my mind is this verse in 2 Corinthians 1, 2. It's like, hey, if you're confronted with truth, now is the day of salvation. If you feel like God has been calling you to say, repent and believe in Jesus and get rid of this lifestyle, get rid of this sin, and you're going, you're probably right, but don't assume you'll always have that conviction forever. Don't assume that you'll always have that window of opportunity to repent forever. I would say if you have that window of opportunity to repent, repent. Please hear that.
That's what we see with Herod. He hears him gladly. He fears John. He's a just and holy man, but he's not going to turn this relationship. He's not going to give it up. He had this window of opportunity, and he didn't take it. And Christians, how practical is this for us? When God gives us a window of opportunity, say, repent, believe in me, you can. You can. Don't have to, it's not like you have to go have these million conversations, and then you can turn in your sin. Like, you can't. Here's the window of opportunity. The Spirit's speaking to you. Repent. And this is interesting, because verse 21 actually shows us another opportunity. He had this window of opportunity to repent right then and there with John over and over again. He heard him gladly, but this window of opportunity is going to end and another window of opportunity is going to open up. And that brings us to Act 3. Act 3 is simply this. uh, Herod pleases man rather than God. Herod pleases man rather than God. Look at verse 21, how it puts it. Verse 21. Then an opportune day came. He had that window of opportunity, but an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, Throws himself a birthday. What a great guy. He gave a feast for his nobles and his officers and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give, it up to, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. No hesitation. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. She went up to her mom. (laughs) And the king was exceedingly sorry. Yet because of the oaths, because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded John the Baptist in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his corpse and laid it in a tomb. All right, I want you to see that there's this window of opportunity to repent with Herod, and he heard John gladly. He, had some, he was somewhat open to spiritual things, but an interesting thing for King Herod, somewhat open to hearing from God, but then another opportunity came. And this is more for Herodias. Another opportune day came. It's his birthday, and Herodias thinks, now's my time. Now's the time to make my move. You're indecisive. You're perplexed. Well, I'm going to be decisive. I'm going to make my move to kill this guy. And what a unique story. She sends... Her daughter in, uh, Herod's Antipas' niece, to do this dance. All right, it wasn't line dancing, by the way. It's not like she's like, hey, it wasn't like a cell phone dance. It was, it's a very sensual dance, a very sexual dance, and it pleased them. And, and honestly, the way this is worded, it, it uses that in that strong, erotic form. It pleased them. And Herod, in his narcissistic mind, he says, ask whatever you want, I'll give you half the kingdom. By the way, Herod is not a king. He's not a king. Actually, Josephus, the historian, tells us he asked if he could get the title king, and he was denied that title. In 39 AD, uh, Caesar took away him even being Herod of Galilee, being that Tetrarch of Galilee, because he knew that he was kind of like wanting to promote himself and wanting more. But he wasn't king. I think Mark is actually sarcastically calling him king, because that's what he wanted to be. He wanted to be king. He cannot promise her up to have the king. He has no power to offer half the kingdom. Like, that's not something he can do. But he's trying to like show off for his boys. He's trying to like show off and say, hey, whatever you ask me, do it. half the kingdom's yours. Can't do that. Half the kingdom's yours. She goes, mom, mom, what should I do? And immediately she goes, give me John the Baptist's head. She's like, okay, mom. And she goes back to the king and she's like, I want it on a platter. And like one-ups her mom. And I just, and this is what caught me in verse 26. He hears this and he goes, he's very sorry. He's very sorry. He's like, what have I done? He didn't want to lose face. In, in the midst of all of this, he didn't want to lose face with those noblemen, with those other leaders, with those people of high authority. He didn't want to lose his reputation, and he, he's very sorry. And, and I want you to see this because the Bible does talk about sorrow. And the Bible talks about sorrow in two ways. All of us, listen, when we sin, 
many of us have sorrow. We almost all have sorrow to some extent. The Bible talks about sorrow that leads to repentance or just a, a worldly sorrow that doesn't lead to repentance. Paul wrote it out this way, and just, just hear this. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, verse 9 through 11. Paul says this, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorry, listen, but that your sorrow led to repentance, for you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication, in all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. But when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he's like, I said something to you in the first book of, that in Corinthians that was really hard and it made you sorrowful. But you know what? That sorrow led to repentance, which led to salvation. It was hard to hear. I shared some hard things with you. It was hard to hear, but it led to repentance and ultimately life and healing. And he goes, but there's another kind of sorrow that people have, and it leads to death. And that's the kind of sorrow that Herod had. It led to death. In a sense, too, he had that opportunity to say, hey, you know what? Uh, Herodias' daughter, is believed, her name was believed to be Salome from what Josephus says. He goes, hey, Salome, I know I promised you up to half the kingdom, and you want John, but I, I can't do that. I mean, he, he could have done that. He could have in front of all of his noblemen repentance and guys, I know I said this, but you know what? This was wrong. I mean, but he, he didn't. He wanted to save face. He wanted to keep his reputation. He feared man rather than God. And that's really the ultimate issue. He had the fear of man and what they thought about him and what they would say about him. And, oh, you're not a man of your word rather than just owning a sin and saying, you know what? I, I, I got in the moment and that was too much. And I'm so, and again, he had this window of opportunity with John the Baptist and missed that window. And then you see Herodias, see her window of opportunity and she takes it. And it leads to this sorrow in his life. And again, when we're confronted with truth, we can either have that sorrow, that same sorrow that is, oh, I miss it. Well, how did I do that? How did I fall myself back in that situation again? And it can ultimately lead to repentance, to salvation, or it can just be sorrow that leads to death and say, whatever. I've already gone this far. I've already done this much. Why not just continue in it? doesn't matter. doesn't matter what people say. It doesn't matter what, I'm just going to continue in my, my, my same way. And that's, what, that's the path Herod took. And he missed this opportunity. And I want you to see something, because here's what's really, we do see Herod again, by the way. I want to like point this out. We see Herod Antipas again before Jesus. Do you guys remember this? When Jesus was taken to be crucified, he actually is sent from um, uh, Pilate to Herod. And we see Herod one more time in the scriptures. And I just want to read the interaction between Herod and Jesus, because at this point in time, Herod had some spirituality here. He heard John gladly, and it's completely gone. It's in Luke 23, verse 8. Listen to this, Luke 23, verse 8. It says, now when Herod saw Jesus, sorry, that's not the right verse. Luke 23, verse 8, I'll read it from here. He says, now, yeah, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him. He's like, finally, Jesus, I get to meet you. Because he heard many things about Jesus, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned with many words, but Jesus answered him nothing. And the chief priest and the scribe stood and vehemently accused Jesus. Then Herod with his men of war treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. I want you to see Herod at this point in time. His conscience is so seared. He's like, do some miracle for me. I've heard about your, your miracles. Pretty arrogant at this point. Doesn't think he's John the Baptist anymore. He goes, do some miracle. Turn water into wine. Do something. Walk on water. Do something. And then Jesus doesn't answer him, so he begins to mock him with other leaders. And this, like I said, this the window of opportunity to repent has been shut. Because you see him at one point in time entertain John the Baptist and like to hear spiritual things. He heard him gladly. That window is shut, and now he's before Jesus, and you see how hard his heart is, and you see how his conscience is seared with a hot iron, as Paul would put it. That there's no sense of conviction anymore. 
There's no sense of maybe I shouldn't mock this guy. Maybe I shouldn't belittle him. Maybe I shouldn't pretend that he's some king and put this robe on him. He was so arrogant and thinks, let me put a robe on you. You think you're king, I'm the true king, but I'll put a robe on you, mocking you, belittling you. And he has no idea what he's doing to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And his conscience was seared with a hot iron. And this is how we read about Herod's life. This is how it ends in that sense. History tells us that he was taken from the throne. He's taken from his position of power. He lived in exile. That's how his life ends. And it's, you read this and you think, what a tragic story. John just ends with his life. John's life, his head is literally taken and given as like a party favor. Think about John the Baptist, the greatest of all prophets, Jesus said. His life ends by being, his, by being beheaded and his head's given as a party favor to this girl who did a sexual dance for you. And that's it. And if we read verse 30, it goes back to the disciples. It's such a weird story when you read this. And I, I really do think that Mark is comparing and contrasting John with Herod and Herod with King Jesus and Jesus with John because there's some language used here that's so interesting. And really quick, I just want to show you the, the, the contrast between John and between Herod and the differences in their lives. We'll just throw this up for you really quick. See so that John was righteous, Herod was debaucherous. John couldn't be bought, Herod could be bought. John had this moral courage. Herod had a, was a spineless coward. John had a clear conscience. Herod had a troubled conscience. John maintained integrity but lost his head. Herod forfeited his integrity but lost his soul. John was a man of the spirit. Herod was a man of the flesh. And I think that you're seeing this, this contrast between John's character and Herod's character. But even more interesting, some of the language here in Mark, I think Mark is being really specific. The disciples take his body and lay it in a tomb. And I think that ultimately, John, we see that John, and please listen, please don't miss this. And you're like, you're looking, please don't miss this. John is the forerunner of Christ. John is the one to say, let me usher in the Christ and his kingdom. And John was the one to make, make Jesus known. John was the one to say, I need to decrease and Jesus needs to increase. And we see some similarities between John the Baptist and Jesus. And here's just a few. Uh, John's disciples laid him in a tomb. Jesus' disciples laid him in a tomb with Joseph of Arimathea. John died innocently at the hands of a Roman official. Jesus died innocently at the hands of a Roman official. But here's some differences. John was believed to have resurrected. Jesus was seen by many and literally resurrected. John lost his head to an enemy of Christians. Jesus crushed the head of the enemy of Christians at the cross. You see, John's life ultimately spoke of Jesus' life. The language it uses, it uses the same word for tomb. It uses the same word for the, it's, it's showing us this idea that John's life ultimately spoke of Jesus. That he too would be laid in a tomb, but he doesn't lose his head. He crushes the head of the serpent. That Jesus defeats sin and hell and death at the cross. And he, John was supposedly rose again in Herod's mind, but Jesus literally rose again. Jesus is the greater than John. Jesus comes on the scene and goes, I'm the greater than John. John was just a forerunner to point to me. And here's what we see in this story. We see that Herod could not handle the truth. The truth was this, you're in sin, you need to repent. And Herod just couldn't handle it. And I think for us today, as we just close our time, is that you and I are also confronted with truth. That if someone were to say to you and I, or the word of God says to you and I, we say, hey, we say this, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God that there is none righteous, no, that everyone needs to repent and believe in Jesus. And when, just like Herod was confronted with truth, he rejected it. But when you and I are confronted with truth, what do we do with it? Herod could not handle the truth of who he was. He could not handle the truth of his debaucherous lifestyle. And it, it, his window of opportunity to repent closed. And I would say this, if you feel or sense that God is speaking, you're saying, listen, repent and believe in me. Put your faith in me. Don't miss that window of opportunity. Repent and believe in Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. I know many of us can't handle the truth and the truth might make you miserable at first, but it will set you free. Again, the gospel is bad news before it's good news. It is tragedy before it's comedy. 
And this is what we see. And we see that Herod couldn't handle it. And I think that the stories in here in the Gospel of Mark to say, look at Herod's life, look at John's life. Do not do what Herod did. Do not respond to truth the same way Herod responded to truth. Do not end your life the way Herod ends his life. John, it might have seemed to be tragic, but is triumphant. John's life spoke to the, to ultimately to Jesus, how he'd be laid in a tomb and be risen, risen again. Amen? I just want to end our time by just praying, by, by thanking God, by worshiping. We're going to spend some time up here just worshiping for the next few moments. If you guys want prayer, we're going to have a person or two up here for prayer. But we're just going to worship. We're going to pray. And I'm going to ask that if you guys um, would just love just for prayer for anything, we're going to be available. But let's stand. Let's worship. And then we're going to end our time with just a couple of quick announcements before we go. Father, we just thank you for this time. We thank you for the truth, Jesus, that you are risen. That, God, we've all been confronted with truth. We've all heard things we haven't wanted to hear, that we knew were true, haven't wanted to submit to them. But, Jesus, I pray that all of us here would take this window of opportunity where we hear the truth and respond to it. That, Jesus, you would be on the throne of our lives. That, Jesus, our focus and our attention would be on you. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this chance we get to slow down and recognize who you are. And even though the story of John the Baptist being beheaded, it it seems so strange or just the timing of it, but Lord, we know that it ultimately will, it does speak to you, Jesus, that you are the greater than John. And we thank you for that truth. So Jesus, we just invite you here in this place and ask that you'd move and speak now in your wonderful name. Amen.